journey with your Enneagram Godmother, Suzanne Stabile. She brought you the road back to you. She's brought you the path between us, the Enneagram Journey podcast. And today she brings you Patrice Gopo. Patrice is an Enneagram 7 who lives in Charlotte, North Carolina with her husband and two daughters. And I love the conversation today around grief, around being a 7, around her incredible book, All the Colors We Will See. So if you're a writer, this is a great, great conversation for you. Before we get into it, let me real quick explain. I apologize. We had a microphone that was going in and out throughout this entire uh, Zoom interview, and it affected the audio pretty greatly. So if you can bear with it for about the first 30 minutes, and then it does improve, and uh, we won't have this issue happen again. And you know where it definitely won't happen again? On October 15th and 16th, when we have our live Enneagram Stances workshop with Suzanne. It's going to be a virtual workshop that you can watch live uh, from the MICA Center. And when you purchase it, you can watch it anytime through the rest of the month of October. So uh, tickets are $75. There are some discounts uh, if you register and purchase before the 8th. But definitely join us. You know, how can we bring up our repressed centers? So October 15th, October 16th, it's going to be online. Register as soon as you can and join us. And now, Suzanne and Patrice. I love this book so much, and here is what I want everybody to know about you. Some people have a gift for telling stories, and uh, when they tell their stories, it is a, a transition moment in a conversation, or it is uh, a period or a break point in a conversation, and in all the colors we will see, when I read your stories, it's, to use my language, sets the table for my stories. Mm. So I want to tell you um, an example. Uh, Joe and I have a library in our home. Uh, We've had four kids and raised them, and we uh, decided we'd use a bedroom for a library. And we have pictures of our family hanging in there. Um, And my parents were older. I was adopted. So uh, my mother was born in 1908, and she graduated from nursing school in, uh, I, I believe, 1929. And when I read the story of you talking about the photograph of your mother in Mm -hmm. her cap as a nurse, I was aware that you didn't know everything about that photograph or about that day for her, but you imagined it. I went straight to our library when I read that, stood in front of the picture of my mother in her nursing uniform, and made up the story of that day the way I think it happened because I can't ask her. That's what your stories do for people. So I don't know if you intended that or if it is just that you're so good at storytelling that that's what happened. But I, uh, I will be saying to people, you have, you have to read this book. If you have stories, you have to read this book. If you don't know your stories, you have to read this book. Because Mm -hmm. underneath 
everything that's happening right now. People uh, are living stories, but things are moving so slow, I don't think they know that they're recording them. Do you think that could be true? Like recording them in their heads? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I think it's interesting that you raise this point that we're in this space where in many ways it feels like one day kind of folds into the next that you can almost not even notice the stories that are happening there. And yet I think our stories are happening every day, always. And sometimes what it means is we just have to look up from our lives for a moment to almost take a view of our lives from above and just kind of note even the small, most casual moments, because I think those can often connect us to the stories that are happening now, but also connect us to stories from the past that in a way want to be told as well. So, and I love what you said, Suzanne, about how that imagining of myself, like as I imagine what's happening in these photographs, that in a way that's part of us making sense of our experience too, that we actually don't always have all the details, all the information, everything, but yet it still is part of who we are and we can still grapple with that is my belief about just trying to enter into stories we may not fully understand or fully know. It was magical for me. Mm-hmm. And, and I think uh, this, I think your sevenness allowed you to tell stories with open hands mm-hmm. instead of closed hands. Yes. It's like, uh, because of your, you know, sevens, I've said for a long time that Enneagram sevens really love relationships because they would just as soon have the opportunity to live two lives as one. Mm -hmm. It's just as much fun to hear about the day of the person they love as it is to tell about their own day because it's like having two lives, right? Yeah. And your story set the table for that, which I don't think a non-seven necessarily could do consistently. Mm. I just think it's such an interesting thought that I've never considered in how that shows up in my writing. But as you're saying it, it makes absolute sense to me that there is this open-handed way in which I approach stories. I know sometimes I will teach classes about writing and this, this aspect of imagining what might have happened, I have realized it is not so simple for everyone to enter into that process of imagining what might have happened. And yet I have realized for myself that it often can be such an enjoyable part of the writing process is to sit with something I don't fully understand and then to speculate about it. And I think you're absolutely right that that is connected to myself being a seven, that I like to do that. So thanks for that insight, which I'll, I'll be thinking about it more. You, um, you also um, are very gracious. Um, there's a story, you know, these are very interesting times in terms of um, racial awareness, 
awareness of racial difference, awareness of color difference. Um, it, it's a time when there seems to be a lot of anger and not a lot of room. And I'm looking for uh, one of the many things that I have marked here that I want to read from. The summer before graduate school, I shouted across the apartment to Jessica about the book I was reading on race and Christianity. For the few months before school began, I lived with her in the second floor apartment on Garson Avenue in Rochester, New York. That lazy Saturday afternoon while Jessica made herself tea, I sat in the living room with my legs curled up on the faded couch, turning the pages of the slim book. It's not just me, I raised my voice to reach her over the whistle of the kettle. It's not just me, I said again before she could answer. Metaphors about being washed white as snow bother other people too. I pulled myself from the deep couch that threatened to suck me in. Our paths met at the edge of the kitchen where her pink hands wrapped around a large mug. It's just that sometimes all this talk about being made white as snow all the images of being black with sin before cleansing makes us white. Sometimes it's just a lot. Mm-hmm. Now here's uh, what I love about that, and then I'll keep reading. One more mm-hmm. paragraph. It's a lot means that you're trying to hold it to me, not that you're pushing it away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And then you say, my voice trailed off, I held the book before her, offering it as if the words could rise up and articulate what I was stumbling through. I wanted to explain to her the weariness of knowing the name for Run's race equates with evil, sin, and death. I wanted to talk about faultless colors. I'm sorry. I wanted to talk about faultless colors shoved in hierarchical structures, but I just said, the color white gets tiring. She nodded her head as if she understood, and I think she did. That is so open-handed. That makes room for me to say, I get that. I get that. And I will never, as a Christian, hear any of those songs again without a moment of, that's tiring. It's exclusive. It's not true, and it's tiring. But you gave Jessica and me the room to be tired with you, Mm -hmm. the room to be white Mm -hmm. without being defensive, Mm -hmm. right? It's like you uh, have a gift for setting the table for things to continue. Hmm. So um, you want to respond to any of that or talk about that any before I... Yeah. Like, I am so excited to talk to you, I can't behave. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I just want to say in response to that, that there is something for me that's very powerful about the ways in which stories can potentially invite people in to engaging with topics maybe maybe we can't necessarily, or it's harder to do just in straightforward conversation, but I think the rendering of a story and sharing that, it then invites people to just sit with the experience of another person. And then to think about 
how is it that I engage with the experience of another person? I think that's something, honestly, Suzanne, that I love about writing and I love about this work that I do is that I feel within stories that it's difficult for us to argue with each other about stories because people are just truly relating their experience. This is what it was like for me. This is, this is how I have, how I have experienced many of these songs and words within the context of the church. And, and now I'm just saying I'm weary of it. And so, right. I yeah. agree with you. There's that sense that for my roommate at that moment to then just share with her, my own weariness was its own sort of invitation to please come sit with this experience with me too. So I, I love that. I love how you say that about that setting the table idea and what that can do. And then I guess the reality there is then people have their own choices about how they want to respond to that invitation to be part of the table that is set here. Sure. And I, I can come sit. I don't always know what I'm supposed to do to try to fix. Mm. Right. Like a, as a 70 year old white woman, I don't always know what to do, but I know how to sit with, and I know how to be with, and I know how to be faithful to, right? I know how to do those things. And I, um, I think this, and I think this because I read All the Colors We Will See. I think we're trying to uh, answer questions and fix problems without imagination. Mm, mm. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, right? And so uh, I, I talk some in Enneagram work about orientation to time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if you've ever heard any of that, but let me just yeah. repeat it for listeners. and for So uh, orientation to time for uh, fours, fives, and nines is the past. For ones, twos, and sixes is the present. And for threes, sevens, and eights is the future. And I would suggest that uh, an awful lot of imagination lies in the past and in the future. But it's more difficult to come by if you are oriented to what's happening right in front of you. Mm -hmm. And as sevens, uh, sevens start developing their imagination when they are children, and they do it by reframing what's happening. Right. But another way we could say that is that sevens do that by suggesting what could be. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yes. So... That's what you do. Yeah. That's what you do. So there's a different place, and I won't read it right now, but it, I, I'm sure you will remember it where uh, it's after your parents have divorced, and mm -hmm. uh, you're, it's right before your wedding, I think. And uh, at, at the end of this story where you're not really aware of exactly what happened and you're wondering what caused their divorce, and, and, and you say at the end of that, it's okay. It's okay. Whatever your musings are about that, you end with, 
but it's it, it's you say we're okay that is setting the table right yeah i'm telling you and so i think all of us who are missing the stories that are happening right now uh need to do something to capture one a day maybe yeah i think so and i um and I think, you know, I want to say this not as some sort of rule or burden to place on people. I feel very hesitant about that. But at the same time, I do think there can be something magical about just taking note of some sort of experience you may have had in the course of a day that that we we keep that. And And I will be completely honest, I was much more focused on that maybe in the last couple months. Right now, I've started taking some of those experiences and turning it into a new essay that I'm working on. So that's kind of been my way of living this moment, That, but also recognizing that there will be a future here too. And so, but I do think there is something, whether you capture that moment in an image or you capture that moment in words or you just sit down with someone and capture that moment in a conversation to acknowledge that we've been here, we've lived this, and it's part of who we are in this moment too. So I think there's something very powerful about that, particularly in seasons of life where it feels as though one day can just roll into the next day and the next day and the next day. Yeah, it feels to me like people might be missing what's happening, waiting for something to happen. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Right. Like when we get back to normal, whatever. Right. There is no back to normal. Right. 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 I think that is it. I think that's true. Um, and I mean, I will just say as a, you know, as a person who often is future oriented, I am very much there. There's a part of me that hopes for what could come, you know, there. So I, I'm, I still believe in what could come in the future, but at the same time, I think there's something about maybe my sense of capturing the now that I believe is going to help me continue to make meaning of things in the future. And so I think that's part of the work that I'm doing, which I sometimes wonder, I know you talk a lot about how sevens, we reframe things. And I have often speculated that one of the ways that shows up in my own life is I'm very quick to try and find meaning in difficult situations. So rather than necessarily engaging with recognizing the difficulty of it, I often will jump to, but here's the meaning of the situation. This is why it was important. This is what I figured out about myself. This is how I, I, I met a figured, you know, entered into a circumstance I wouldn't have normally entered into because of this difficult situation. And I think in that, that it's its own form of reframing that I'm often so quick to do that. But yet I still think there's value in us finding meaning in difficult situations too. One of the things that I noticed, uh, you, synchronicity is kind of my way of seeing. I love that. I love and... synchronicity and that <laughs> word. I just adore it. Do you, Suzanne, can you give a rundown uh, it's the old question of can you do a quick three to five minute rundown? Because do you agree that for unless 
I'll talk about myself, but then also for other sevens, like the energy spent into future ideas and time. Do you ever show up at a family get together and I'm talking about that? You're like, all right, let's wait out Joel here for him to finish this so that we can better use our conversational time. Does that make sense to you? And then same with, and I do the same with other family members where I'm like, all right, let's, uh, let's say that it's Joey's passionate about something and it's like, all right, let's, and she's airing it out and venting it out. Even though we've already talked about it a little bit, let's, you know, this is what she, how she does it. And then same with you for each number, kind of something that the other eight numbers are like, all right, we need to let Jane, you know, mm-hmm. do this. And before we can actually get to something productive. Uh, I'll try. Let's, let's try and see what we get. Um, I'm, I'm going to start with ones. And I think ones uh, are usually entering conversation, talking about things that aren't as they should be. Mm. Um, I think they kind of start off with, you know, if this had happened, then this would be better. Or I like, I think... Um, that you know they might come in and need to talk a while about how bad the traffic is or about why they're five minutes late or something that is um that starts off with what's wrong and then might go into how it could be right uh twos uh i think generally enter conversation with something personal or by reporting something personal on somebody else about somebody else Not a negative thing necessarily, but a thing. Um, I might, um, like one of our son-in-laws, Jenny's husband had surgery. So I would probably enter a family event saying, uh, I talked to Jen and Corey's better. You know, something like that. Threes uh, generally hold back uh, for a long time and conversations in groups until they see where the group is going and then they make a contribution fours um generally hold back for a while and then when they start they start with a happy happy or sad sad not middle space fives usually report information that they're sure of or an article they read or something like that. Sixes generally uh, have to get through with the little basics, like, man, I went to the grocery store yesterday. Usually they talk about practical things leading into loftier thoughts. Sevens, y'all have managed beautifully yourselves. Eights um, generally enter a conversation when it gets their interest Mm. or if they have something that they wanted to share when they got there and they've been waiting for everybody else to get through. Nines uh, do not determine the direction of conversation. They just generally respond to the direction it's growing. Mm. That's what I would say to all that. Mm. Here's what I want to add, though, about sevens uh and then i want to change topics a little bit and what i want to add is that there's a difference i I don't know what the appropriate words are patrice maybe you can help me 
Hmm. There's a difference in imagination and in imagining something. Hmm. Hmm. I, I don't know what other words to use because you all tend to think of, of what could be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like what could be yeah. from this wonderful place, and that's very different than what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Right, well, that from that what's going to happen place, and y'all don't hang out in the what's going to happen place. Right. Yeah, I think that's true. I think there is the um, that sense of it's almost, you know what I think it's a little bit like? It's a little bit like writing a story, like you're writing a story of what what could exist out there, which I think maybe back to your earlier point, it's part of why I enjoy that part in writing where you don't always know all the details, but you try and flesh it out and fill it in because I think there's something to it about this openness of what could be possible. Um, but again, I. You know, I think for myself, like I mentioned, I, I do think my six wing shows up from time to time because I do notice in these very strange situations that I'll have this, oh, something could go not well there, you know, but then it, it falls away. But I think generally the standpoint is this is very exciting. This could happen. The, you know, life could unfold like this. So I, I was saying to my husband, last earlier this month that you know i think there's there have just been some very hard things that have happened in the last couple months in many ways and when you think about everything that has happened with you know racial violence in the conversation there's been a lot of hard things and i realized i was not functioning in the best space and one of my indicators for that is my typical wake up pattern is I have like three or four ideas of what could happen in the day, like what maybe we should do, what I'm going to work on. I have, you know, I'm working on a writing project and I've figured out, you know, the thing that I need to make this essay work. Or, or I think, oh, we should move the bookshelf from this room to this room, you know, and I'll wake up first thing in the morning and all these things are there. And what I noticed in the time where I felt as though it was just feeling hard and I was, there was such a heaviness is I was waking up without ideas for things. And instead my, the way I was waking up was much more of, it was almost as though I was taking an inventory of things I'd, mistakes I'd made in the past. And it was so strange, Suzanne. And I thought, oh, you know, I'm not probably functioning in my healthiest place right now because I'm not waking up in this mindset that I typically do. Instead, it's, I think I'm probably moving in the direction of, you know, that when I moved towards one, I think that was what was happening for me is, and I was mm -hmm. having more of these mm -hmm. experiences where it was more like internal thinking, evaluating myself versus this forward thinking, looking at what I could do type thing of imagining, I guess. Did you, did you pinpoint what it was that had triggered that or made that move? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was everything that happened in the aftermath of George Floyd's execution and everything that it was 
everything that was going on, it was the, you know, people reaching out to me, wanting to me to say something and, you know, the kind of the stress of not even sure what I wanted to say. And yet the, it, there was just a lot of emotions that were going on. It was my own recognition of my own grief about what was happening in our world and the reality that what is happening is not new. Like these, you know, knowing that, living with that truth, that this is not new. These are things that have been going on. You know, I write about this in my book and things. So, but it was just, it all happened. It was, it felt like it was coming from every angle at me. And I just realized I was not doing well with it. And I think that was, that was one big indication for me was that I'm not, I'm not waking up with dreams of what might be possible right now. And, um, and, and actually to realize that was helpful for me to see that something's going on here more than I can just reframe my way out of. Okay. So then what was the next step, if you don't mind? Yeah. So, cause that's, we talk about, you teach about the observation, the mm-hmm. non-judgmental observation. You did that. And that's, it's like, awesome. I'm, I'm waking up <laughs> in a, this different space than I normally like to be in. So then what was the, what was the next step? Not the, not a correction because it's a natural movement, but like, what is it that you did to kind of get back to, yeah. uh, to get out of that space? Yeah. So I would say, several things happened. I think one, the recognition was very important for me to just name that this is something that's going on. The second thing that I found helpful is that I have been over the last three or four months on what I call a grief and lament journey. So I have been, it's kind of a longer story of how it came about, but I have been actively seeking to enter into places of lament and grief because I know that is not my normal place that I want to be. But I feel like in February, I had this experience that was an invitation to engage with lament and grief. And so so I've been on this journey. So you know how some people will keep gratitude journals a friend of mine who's also an Enneagram seven, she encouraged me to think about keeping a journal of laments and working to not take the spaces of sadness and just reframe them into some way that feels better, but to actually allow myself to sit with my grief and and in the process of sitting with my grief to allow that to maybe heal things that I've just tried to reframe away in my life. And so that's been so significant. And so when this period of time was happening, one of the things that I ended up doing was trying to sit with the actual pain and grief that I'm feeling rather than thinking I need to make it go away. So that I think has been helpful. And then the third thing that I did is I did make an appointment with a counselor to just talk through what it was I was feeling and get some other insights. And that was extremely helpful because in that there was affirmation that some of what I am experiencing right now, even with my anger was also tied into grief. And because I'd already been on this 
kind of journey of choosing to engage with lament and grief that I think it just didn't scare me as much to say I'm going to actually allow myself to feel all these emotions to be here in this place and to grieve. And so I think those things have been what has been very helpful for me to, to help me navigate through this process of um, just recognizing that I was not in a good space and what it might mean to come back into a space that feels healthier for me. Do y'all think that other numbers are invited to grieve and at, in that space more often than, than sevens are? One of the things that I'm recognizing right now in history is that it is open season on grieving all of these things that have not been grieved and starting with recognizing things that have not been recognized and then grieving things that have not been grieved. Is that true? And then to a more selfish standpoint, do you think that sevens are often invited? Like you said, you were given this journal and instead, cause we, it's all time. Our sevens are happy and go get them. And, yeah. uh, the, um, that was the opposite of the grief journal, the gratitude, gra- gratitude yeah. journals. Yeah. I mean, we, so many gratitude journals. I know that's- that. Yeah. I, can I just say as an aside, when I was talking to this friend about this, because when I felt this invitation to deal with grief, you guys, I didn't know how to do that. I, I didn't even know what that meant to, to actually engage with this process of grieving. And so when I spoke to this friend of mine who she's also, as I said, she's also Enneagram seven. She made this comment about how gratitude journals and sevens that they sevens love gratitude journals. And I said to her, wow, this is really helpful because I had started keeping a gratitude journal a few years back. And, you know, people will say a gratitude journal will change your life. And I was steady waiting for my life change and it, it wasn't happening. And I didn't, you know, I just thought this life is still great. It's feeling great. I'm not, you know, and someone pointed out to me that, you know, you do express a lot of gratitude already. And then when I talked to this friend of mine, she was, she actually named this idea that gratitude journals, that sevens can keep those any day of the week, all the time that actually the harder part for us is to acknowledge the points of pain and to, to, to name them because they're part of life too. And this couldn't be more spot on. That's what, so I've got the nightly inventory that an outline that I was given from uh, the last resort and part of, you know, so it's all these things throughout the day. And one of, you know, one of them is things that you're grateful for. And also, you know, as, I think it's one of those things as a kid, they teach you in vacation Bible school, you know, be grateful. I mean, gratitude is just got to, yeah. for sevens, like we already have that. Yeah, right. So then at that part of the nightly inventory, it's just full. I'm like, yeah. man, I'm crushing this inventory. Look at all these so things like, that I'm grateful look at for. All this wonderful stuff that happened in the day. It is amazing. Yeah. Life is just uh, amazing. The sun came up and then the sun exactly. was still up. And then, and then all the these rain things. was on the pavement and it sounded beautiful. And it had this so great for the nature to have the rain. Yeah. 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 It, but then I'm so lacking in all these other areas in this inventory. And, and you're right. It's like, what? 
how do I fill out the rest of this? And no one, I think other, I don't know. I, I just feel like we're, we haven't been taught something. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm going to teach you something. <laughs> um, I believe that one of the things that is inherently wrong with our culture and maybe other cultures that I'm not as familiar with and don't want to speak for is that we have no idea how to grieve. We're not taught grieving. We don't know how to grieve. And over the last 20 years, there is this thing that is kind of overtaken a, a huge chunk of Christianity that is, you, you, there, everything's great. Every, there doesn't have to be any suffering. If you're lined up right and if you know who God is and who you are, then there's everything's great and everything is not great. And I think some very basic things. Number one, I think because you don't live with the illusion as sevens that you know how to grieve, you have a better shot at learning than the other eight numbers who are living with the illusion that they know how by doing the kind of thing you're doing, Patrice. The second thing I want to say is that uh, we aren't encouraged to grieve. We're encouraged to keep moving. Yes. yes. And we're encouraged to, uh, you, you know, when uh, when a parent loses a child or a, a, a spouse loses a partner, um, we give them a little bit of time and then we say, it's time for you to get out and get back in the world. And, and you can't put a time limit on grieving. So I, I want to silo that and I want to say that you also can't change what you can't name. And I want to silo that, and I want to say that this whole thing y'all are are opening up for conversation among us, but I hope for other people around grieving, it is, I think when people can't grieve, they get angry. Or they get um, indifferent. And... I think the dream we have, most of us, of living together while honoring racial difference can only come when we grieve all the time that we haven't done that or didn't know how. And when you can't grieve... You make excuses for behavior that isn't getting you anywhere. So, Patrice, when I read your book, I cried at least five times. And the reason for that is because um, you gave me room to be sad about racial difference and inequality and other racial difference concerns without having to be either defensive or have an immediate answer. And I think that's what the hope that is embodied in sevens is conveyed 
through the way sevens live their lives. So one of the things that you said you'd like to maybe talk about uh, was the impact that both gender and race may have on how we present in our numbers. And I would like to have a, a very big conversation about that with a lot of people in the room at some point. I kind of have this dream that we might just invite lots of folks when we can to come to the MICA Center and let's just spend three days talking about it and see what we come up with. We're not spending our time and energy right now thinking about stuff like that and <laughs> having those ideas. Okay, we need some more concrete, futuristic thinking. I mean, I'm, I'm not just, doing that. I'm already in my head thinking that would be brilliant. Three days of time. <laughs> I, I would love to hear that conversation. Well, um, if I can pull it together, you'll be hearing it because you'll certainly be invited. But I, I, I think we have to do that. You know, I, I, um, I don't think there is an Enneagram person, regardless of how much Enneagram wisdom they have on board, who can speak fluently for any race other than their own or for any gender other than their own. And so it feels foolish to me for us to try to say something important or say something helpful for for anybody. But all I know to talk about is me and what I'm trying to mm-hmm. set the table for, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for conversations where I can learn one-on-one. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so Patrice, if we pull that day together, right, if we live this dream, then it will be, Space. It'll take at least three days because the only pe- way we can teach one another is with personal stories, right? I think so. I think absolutely that. Because I know for myself, the reason this question, I found it so fascinating is, so I'll just say one of, one of the reasons I love listening to this podcast, Suzanne, you, you are a two, Joel is a seven. I'm pretty sure my mother is a two as well. So I feel as though it helps me just in insight into my own relationship with my mother. But I know sometimes as I've heard Joel speak about being a seven, I've thought, you know, that hasn't really been my experience. And I have sometimes across time wondered in societies where we often expect maybe women to conform to certain ideals and then we often oppress certain groups and stuff what does that do to how like the type of freedom that a person might feel to even exist in their particular number and uh and so i i think sometimes for me i have i i think there's been some some forms of conditioning that have happened that maybe i don't always feel as much freedom that i think a white male might feel in society to engage in certain types of behavior whatever it may be that you know from early on it's been maybe shut down in me that that and so it's just i have an insane amount of privilege that is I willingly recognize <laughs> I have anagram privilege. I mean, there's no <laughs> seven has never been a, an issue for me, like, or a question. And so that's right. And so I just think it's just an interesting dynamic as we are figuring this out. I know for myself, 
it was very hard for me to figure out for sure that I was a seven. I, for a long time, I was thinking, I think I could be a one. I think I could be a one because there's a lot of behaviors that the, that Enneagram one people have that I have seen in my own life that show up that, uh, that I think have really helped me kind of be successful in different areas that I have engaged in academically and, you know, professionally and things of that nature. Um, but I, when I look back at my childhood, I often think, but there were probably, you know, growing up as this little black girl in a predominantly white community, that there were probably pressures that I experienced and stresses that I experienced that probably allowed some of those characteristics of the one to just continue with who I am today, even if that might not be full. And then, you know, I also think through my thirties, um, there were just a lot of other stresses like church stress, friendship stress, different stresses that I also think made it a little confusing for me. And what was helpful for me is I thought back to, I was 20 years old and I spent a year living in the UK. And when I think of who that woman was that year, I think that's where I see kind of almost the fullest version of my seven self living is it was just like a year mm -hmm. of, let us go and fully enjoy and partake in life and everything that life has to offer. I, you know, I know I'm in university here, but actually this is really about the enjoyment and the fun and the excitement of this, you know, year abroad. And, and so it was kind of in that space, I thought, yeah, that's, that's actually where I see myself kind of living in its fullness in a way. But I think in there's so many other areas of life where I've experienced stress that I've, it's just made me wonder over time. And so that was where that question really came from. Mom, you talk about how important context and environment are and how it is always, those are both always changing. And you talk about, you just gave a great example of thinking back to a time. That's why Suzanne says, hey, think back for older people who are trying to figure out their Enneagram number. Think back to your 20s. It brings up maybe a, a different way to talk about that of think back to an environment where you felt safe. Yeah. Think back and comfortable because what I'm hearing from you and from everyone, what I kind of I'm taking in is that there's an underlying tension, uh, tension for marginalized individuals who are in the exact same environment because the context is different because they're black, brown, yellow, gay, trans. Mm -hmm. That is a different context than people with different privileges. And so I think is that that's so it's a hundred percent what you're saying of it's I, as a white male in everyday life, as a white straight male respond to outside stimulus differently because I don't have the tension of being marginalized in one of those areas or a number of other categories. And so I don't recognize, I, it wasn't, uh, it was, it, I never thought, oh man, I, I wonder if I'm a one because that one was so dramatic when it happened, you know, for, to, for my environment to send me to one space, something had to reel off. And 
so that I didn't have that. However, you know, for for different numbers, I I'm curious if a black female too recognizes that eight space much more easily than a white female too. I guess is what I'm saying. Um, I hear. Oh, I have 400 things to say <laughs> and a, a limited amount of time, but um, here's what I would love for everybody who's listening to try as a spiritual practice. A spiritual meaning that it will make you more human. <laughs> um, so adoption is a thing for me. And uh, so my touchstones are when I uh, was growing up, I didn't look like anybody in my family. Uh, another touchstone for me is when I was growing up, I, uh, when they, when they say in school, when they teach biology and they talk about genetics and why your eyes are green or brown or whatever, that's another touchstone. When I go to the doctor and they ask for family history, that's another touchstone. What I'm aware of by becoming aware of how I feel in those moments is that sets the stage for me to try to understand how you feel, Patrice, having uh, Jamaican parents who immigrated here. The word immigration is used uh, in so many contexts, so offhandedly, so often negatively by people who have no idea what they're talking about, no idea who they're talking to, no idea, no idea. And I am, by trying to be aware of the things that make me feel like I don't belong, I'm trying to listen for words that are used offhandedly culturally that would make you feel like you don't belong. Because if I don't have a practice like that, I don't know how to stay connected to your experience in a way as, as little as I am capable of understanding your experience. If I don't connect it to some reality in my life, I don't know how to begin to connect with you. And those are places where I didn't feel like I belonged. And I have been teaching for years that I believe everybody wants their life to have meaning and everybody wants to experience belonging. And that's one of the things that you talk about. And I, I, I think that in order to understand how somebody else feels like they don't belong, we have to figure out a place where we didn't. Otherwise, I don't think people can get it. What do you think? Yeah, so I think... I think that is so true, which is that sense of us interacting with our own stories to find, like you say, these touch points mm-hmm. of experience, because I think these are the things, and I loved how you said this, Suzanne, because I, what you offered there was that these touch points can potentially help connect us to another experience. And when we connect to that other experience, then we're in a position where we can then recognize the ways that experience is actually not the same as ours, right? And so I think that's what is part of the expansive nature of, I think it's important that we we recognize that. I think one of the challenges in society is that we often, and I say this like broadly in society, that they often want us to stop at, look at the connection points, see how we're so similar. 
And I think right. that actually does a big disservice to the story. So I love the sense of what you're saying that it allows to connect such that we can then grapple with the ways in which our stories differ from one another. And um, so, so that it kind of expands even the way we see that. Um, and, and I think beyond that, the other piece that I like to add to that is, and if for some reason, the ways in which these stories are differ, if there's elements of injustice that are contributing to that reason, then I think we're in a better position to then work to address the injustice that might exist in these particular places. But, but I think that is how we work as human beings, that we, um, we figure out these places where there are connection points. And now, I, and I think there's lots of discussion then about, you know, sometimes given the situation, maybe we do share how we have these connected touch points, or maybe we don't to just honor the story that someone else is telling that in ourselves, we mm -hmm. recognize that I can connect with this because of an experience, but it doesn't necessarily always mean I need to say what the experience is that connects because I think sometimes then people feel like their story is invalidated since since they, they themselves are seeing that this is actually not the same thing. But at the same time, I still believe it's important that we do search within ourselves to think how it is that we could potentially understand another person's experience in a deeper way than, um, than just at the surface, I guess, which I guess a deeper way would always be more than just at the surface. So. Well, you know what, I, what I'm, what I'm trying to say, I think, is that until I can feel it in myself, not, not necessarily talk about it, but till I can feel it in myself, I don't know how to relate to how somebody else is feeling. Mm. Mm. Right? I, 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 I don't think this is just an intellectual exercise that we're all involved in. There are feelings that everybody has. People are acting out of feelings when they are uh, protesting, <clears throat> when they are um, grappling to understand. I think it has to do with feelings, and I'm, all I'm saying is um, I, I certainly don't think it's appropriate uh, for me to use my story to connect to your story other than telling you how I'm trying to get there. Right? Does that make sense? I'm, oh, yeah. I'm, uh, right? And, and until I got in touch with how it felt to me, I was totally unaware of how much we're talking about immigration culturally and, and how uh, judgmental it is at times. Like, I just wasn't listening for that. And I think you can't hear what you're not listening for. And I think you have to spend some time figuring out what you're, you need to listen for. It, I don't know if any of that makes sense. And, and I don't know that any of these conversations that we try to have uh, are going to make sense. I don't think there's, they're going to end with a bow, right? No, I don't think we can wrap this up with a bow. Can't do it. Can't do it. I'm saying when I am aware of a moment when I feel like I don't belong, it connects me to a desire to understand what it feels like as a black female, very bright, very talented, seven in the world, 
and I'll never know unless I can connect to thinking and feeling. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, I think that, it, yeah, I think there is that sense of how, as we share stories, do we offer moments in which people can connect with the story for the purpose of us more deeply understanding one another's stories. And I think that there is, because I think that is the sense that one of the things I've loved about my book is how it has done that with people, that there have been places where people who have, who are completely different from me. I remember receiving this email from, um, an older white man, I think he said he was 85 or something, and he had read my book and just what it meant to him to have read it. And also that he shared these moments that resonated with him that he he could feel in the book. And yet at the same time, there was a sense of, I felt these, like I felt this connection. And yet then I saw this whole other experience that was not my experience. Right. And I thought, this is the book doing the work that I want it to do is when it does that, you know, that it's doing that, that it, there are these moments of connection that then invite someone to see something that could be potentially very different. Or for some people, I think potentially very affirming of their experience, because I've certainly heard from, you know, other children of Jamaican immigrants who have wrote me and said, I have felt seen by reading this story. I feel as though my story matters there too. So, you know, it happens in different ways, but you know, one thing, Suzanne, that what you're saying makes me think of is years and years ago when I was working at the YWCA. uh, So the YWCA, their, their mission statement is eliminating racism and empowering women is their mission statement. And one of the things that I did while I was there is I organized this staff book club to engage with discussions around race. So we would read, we read a couple different books and we had some like staff conversations. So it wasn't a program for the community, but it was just for the staff. Um, And I remember we had for the first book, I just remember the discussion. It was, it was very challenging and it lasts, it was supposed to be like a two, two hour discussion. It ended up lasting the entire day. And, you know, there was a lot of, um, just like lots of frustration at the end of the discussion and so i reached out to a facilitator i knew to just ask some questions and one of the about how could we maybe engage in this in a better way because it was struggling and she said to me that why don't you begin by having everyone share a time in their life where they feel like they did not belong to the space that they were in. And just everyone share these stories and let's and sit with those stories for a little bit. And I found it to be so helpful and so powerful for that group because I think before then, it's almost as though we hadn't had the ability to maybe attach ourselves to certain connections that were shared within the group that these experiences Mm -hmm. of feeling as though you were not part of a space that you were in. And then that Mm -hmm. ability, I think, enabled us to then launch into conversation about the ways in which our particular paths differed from each other and what 
what the mm -hmm. challenges were that created those differing paths and to actually engage I think in a in a way that it was just it it wasn't so gridlocked i guess was what i would say so so i think there's something very powerful about what that idea of creating space for connections to happen so that we can then honor the differences that exist yeah i i, I just uh I, I think we're gonna have to have some feelings connected to um to what we are talking about and coming from a feeling dominant number, uh, you know, uh, maybe that's a part of that bias. I don't know. You're going to say something? Well, I was just going to say, I don't think it's a, I think you're right, but I don't think it's just feelings. We talked, I think it was mentioned a little bit at the Anagram Boot Camp. And that is in what I'm picking up on, what are the most productive forms of uh, activism are the are the ones that have or the opportunities that have a balance that include all three of the centers of intelligence you talked about how in the pro all these people protesting there's so much emotion and i think there are some people that are like getting out and protesting out of emotion and i think there are others though that got to emotion after one of the other two but i think there's the most successful I don't know what is what's the word that incorporates rally, protest, all of it, uh, are the ones that combine all three. Yeah, that have that are thought out, thought and have thought about all the different aspects of it of, of the scenario that have feelings behind it and action. Mm -hmm. And I think people's responses to what's going on that are missing one or two of those are not well received. I absolutely agree with that. And I think uh, David White talks about, um, the poet talks about maturity, meaning that you hold the past, present, and future all at the same time. And I think uh, that applies to this discussion and to our living out of what we're trying to uh, participate in to make a difference. Uh, and I think thinking and feeling and doing have to be a part of it as well. And I think feeling dominant people have to make a feeling connection first in order to think mm -hmm. and do. And I think thinking dominant people have to make a thinking connection first. And the same is true for doing dominant people. And I, 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 I believe this. I think those these pieces that we're trying to kind of put together somehow are all pieces of uh, our efforts being more meaningful. I hate to say more successful because I'm not sure what successful is going to look like, but I think uh, I, I think our experiences together in this time need to hold enough meaning to keep our feet in the, at the edge of the fire when everybody gets busy again. Yeah, I'm so good usually with what to say, and lately I'm so struggle with what to say. And I don't think that's bad. I think we need a balance in thinking, feeling, and doing more than ever. I think it's always needed, but more than ever. 
However, the way we are taught to process information and the expectations of us don't serve us well. So people that are responding on social media, you know, it's just so quick that there's no way to to bring all three to a level surface right now without slowing things down. Uh, And I think we have a responsibility perhaps to work on continuing to work on, which is what we're doing with boot camp tools that help you find balance so that we don't just say, Oh, you need more balance. You you need to run home and get some balance and then come back. It's like, okay, I don't know what that means. Right. Yeah. How does that, how does that actually show? <laughs> it makes me think of when I was, I felt like I needed to grieve and I didn't know how I needed someone to help me figure out how to do that. And similar in that right. same way, how to figure out how to have that particular balance that one brings. Well, yeah, I watched with my, one of my daughters is really big into Adam Sandler right now. Yeah. So, so we were watching, I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. And uh, one of the characters, his wife dies. And he goes to change his beneficiaries, I believe, from his wife to his children. Or some, something along those lines. And she was like, well, you needed to do that. You already missed the cutoff for that, for doing that. She's like, you should have done that time. And he's like, forgive me. I'm sorry. I was grieving the death of my wife. But, you know, it, it's all those things of there's a cutoff. Right. Wives died and insurance only gives you three months to get this paperwork done. Or, and it's like, how do, you, how do you take care of yourself and grieve and meet everyone else's expectations and needs? Yeah, I um, have a question about that. Patrice, I'd be interested in in hearing your response to this. Um, Joe is head of congregational care at a very large church, and we're unable to have funerals right now uh, of any size. And so there are literally people who are waiting to have memorial services later on, when they can, and I have a big question about the difference in grieving over a time and in grieving, uh, but being sure that you're all together for the funeral that's three days later, right? It's like, mm-hmm. do we not allow for grieving in that instance too? And I don't know what difference that's going to make. Yeah, that's interesting. I, um, And I will say, I feel as though my particular journey has been much more with, I guess, like small griefs or everyday griefs versus significant loss. So I haven't Mm -hmm. thought as much about the nature of significant loss. But, you know, one thing that I think has been coming through in this in these months and in this experience is this idea of we often think of life as being this continuum, kind of just one straight line going Mm -hmm. forwards. And this image that has come back to me in multiple ways and in multiple sources, synchronicity, honestly, it's been synchronicity, is this idea of life being a spiral, that that we often return again and again to some of the familiar places that we've already been. And yet we, maybe we feel something different or we, we encounter it with greater knowledge than we did before. And so when I hear that idea of thinking about the 
the moment of grief and then thinking about the idea of grief over an extended period of time, in my mind, it feels as though both are important for their own unique reasons and um, that they both matter. And yet I also have this sense that whatever grief we may feel, I think we, we return to it at other moments in time too, that, that there will be other things that kind of bring us back to that moment and that we engage with it in that way. So, but I don't, you know, I just want to be careful to say that I, I don't know what that necessarily would look like in this moment for something as significant as the loss of a loved one versus I think some of the things that I've mm -hmm. been engaged with is like disappointments I've experienced in life or hurts that have happened or, uh, those are the types of things that I've been thinking about more readily right now. One of the things that I learned uh, in walking beside Joel uh, and loving him when he was struggling at the beginning of his journey with recovery was that um, there comes a time for sevens when life insists on grieving but they haven't practiced mm. because they reframe things and because of their imagination and because of how they see, they haven't practiced grieving, so they don't know grieving, right? Yeah. So I think you're practicing. Yeah. You're practicing. Yeah. yeah. It's going to serve you very well. <laughs> I will just say, I did say to my husband at one point as I was doing this, do you think this is preparing me for something? Like, is there, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. It, it just yeah, was I an interesting know. concept. <laughs> um, but I, I think you're right. This idea of, of how we practice emotion, because to the earlier point, if we are a society that's intent on the practice of gratitude, I think that's really, really helpful particularly for people who may struggle to engage with the practice of gratitude. But I do think there's a segment of us out there who, who don't know how to engage with loss, that we don't know what to do with it. And maybe the segment is larger than we're even recognizing to your earlier point that maybe we as a society often say we need to, um, we just need to move past. I want to uh, say again to everybody all the colors we will see. I, um, I can't recommend this book uh, highly enough with words, so I'm going to just try to keep talking through my coming months and, and my own writing about what it taught me and is teaching me. Uh, but one of the things I want to say, and then I want you to close, but one of the last things I want to say is that uh, this book has even taught me what I haven't thought about. And it's a, this seems like a little thing, but it's actually very big for me. And that is that it literally took me until this morning when I was getting ready to come here, knowing that I was going to get to talk with you to recognize from one of the stories that you wrote that there was not a photographer at my parents' wedding when they got married in 1931. And I am aware for the first time that I've never seen a photograph of my mother 
uh, on her wedding day because there aren't any. They saved like $5,000, I'll tell you that. (laughs) So I, I think that when we are gifted with an opportunity to hear other people's stories, if we allow them to resonate, they will show us something that we don't know that we need to know. And Patrice, you have uh, paved the way for that. I'd love for you to close with something that you would, you can say whatever you want in addition to this, but I would like for one of the things you close with to be something that you would like for people to know about being a black woman in America today and a seven. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah, I can speak to that. So I would say what I would want people to know about being a black woman in America today is my story is one of many, many, many stories that to be a black woman in America is certainly to have many things in common with the experience of other black women in America but at the same time to just recognize that we are all each our own individual stories. And I think our society has particularly done a disservice when it comes to the stories of black people by often lumping them all together as if they're one one story. And, mm-hmm. and as I said, I think there's certainly our commonalities and things shared and as people engage with more and more stories, you can see patterns. But I also want people to know that our our stories are individual stories too. And, and just as we might engage with many, many stories, you know, in other of other cultures, particularly if you think about engaging with many, many stories that center around white people, that it's just as important that we engage with an abundance of black stories too. So that's what I would say to that question mm-hmm. or comment. Um, and then thinking about being an Enneagram seven, I think one of the things that I feel just based on this journey I've been over over the last couple months that I've shared with you all is that I think for Enneagram sevens, it does take work for us to engage in some of these hard spaces and these painful spaces And I think we actually need people to engage with us as we're engaging, because I think the easier thing can be to not. And actually what I have found is to go into these difficult, painful, hard spaces has actually proven to be life-giving for me. And I I had no idea that it could be like that, so. So great. Well, uh, Patrice, thank you. Engaging with you has, uh, and with your work has made my heart bigger and I'm so grateful. Well, thank you so much. Honestly, this uh, let's has been start. such a pleasure on this podcast today because I have learned so much about, about myself as an Enneagram seven through this podcast, but also about the people in my life that I love that, you have said, I've heard you say this idea that understanding how other people are, you develop greater compassion. And 
that has been true for me, that I feel as though I've had greater compassion towards the people around me as well. So thank you both for having me on today. Sure, it's our privilege and honor. And let's start making a list because we're going to have a big party, you and I, a three-day party. It'll be we're going to do it. You start working on your list. I'm going to start working on mine. That sounds good. That sounds great. Thank you, Patrice.